The subtitle is Goldman and Cenobi Have Disappeared. Um, again, one of the, 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 the questions this project has raised right from the beginning is who are Goldman and Cenobi and more importantly, where are Goldman and Cenobi? I suppose it's a bit of a misnomer because of course they haven't actually appeared, let alone disappeared. But the question, and it's a question they put to themselves, I know, because I've tried to answer it for them at various points, is what their role is with respect to their own project. And I think, you know, running through conceptual art in general, the relationship of the author to the work, uh, the artist to the work, uh, is quite important. Anyway, um, that gives us some context. Um, let's start at the end. One of the features of Headless, which you may have seen in the... Uh, uh, exhibit behind you, is that as the project has unfolded over the years, it's all been written up sequentially as a novel, uh, a murder mystery novel, a kind of sub-Dan Brown schlocker, uh, in which everyone who participates in the project at some point appears in the novel. So I appear as a character in the novel. And this is me, both as me and as the character in the novel. And the text alongside it, which I'll read out in a second, just because that seems to be the thing that I do, uh, is the last paragraphs of the novel itself. There is a prologue and an epilogue, but this is the last uh, paragraph of the actual novel. So just to uh, read it out. Cameron looks on, his whole body shaking with hilarity, his breathing having degenerated into a series of phlegmy gasps to punctuate the laughter. As the curtain rises, he sees the sleek pretty one. This is a monkey, by the way, the sleek pretty one. It's nothing quite as perverted as it might sound. Uh, her expression unchanged, her eyes still right on him, proud and satisfied. Then she turns, hoists her backside into the air and walks away. He can take no more. He slumps down to the ground. He cradles his head in his hands. Finally, when his breathing is calmed somewhat, he looks up high into the shadows of the enclosure and sees that Golden and Cenobi have disappeared. Now, the Golden and Cenobi here are two of the monkeys. Uh, which you can see behind me in what is the macaque enclosure in London Zoo. And almost exactly a year ago today, I did a lecture performance, a public lecture performance in London Zoo in front of the monkey house for reasons I'll come on to explain in a minute. The text was written before I did the talk. And so when I did the talk, I was reading out sections of the novel describing the event that I was actually performing at the time. And I put this in just to give you a flavor of the complexity of the project as it's unfolded and the complexity of the, of the subject positions we all find ourselves in with respect to the project. Um, because the person here who's having the nervous breakdown uh, is me. That was me reading out the bit about me having a nervous breakdown. Uh, and needless to say, I didn't actually have the nervous breakdown. Uh, that I'm, I'm storing that up for some other time. Um, but the... Uh, the fluidity of our identities with respect to the project is very integral to what it is pointing at, what it means. I should also point out that when it says Golden and Cenobi have disappeared, uh, this is two of the monkeys that I, in my cynical, twisted and embittered and slightly crazed uh, uh, persona in the novel, have named Golden and Cenobi to try and get a little bit of revenge on these evil manipulators who, uh, uh, by this point, ruined my life and several others on the way. Um, uh, including the odd death and murder and decapitation and all sorts of things on the way. The novel in question uh, is called Looking for Headless uh, and is described, and you can see bits of it along the back here, uh, as a novel in the making by KD. Now, KD is a real person uh, who used to be referred to by her name until the company she works for 
threatened legal action against Goldman Senebi, and so she was reduced to her initials. Um, and so I'll continue to use just her initials. But KD appears in a number of different personae uh, in the various things you've got behind you um, and writes this novel. In practice, the novel is actually written by a British uh, author living in northern Spain called John Barlow, uh, who may or may not be writing the novel, but he also appears in the novel writing the novel, uh, just to make things uh, interesting. And there's John Barlow uh, at the bottom there. Uh, and the whole thing, I mean, this is a, a, a sort of mind map of the project as it was in 2008 when that, this installation was first created. Because as the project has unfolded, and this is, as I say, three years ago, so it would be much bigger than this now, all of these individuals are in some way involved in the production of Looking for Headless. Some are real, some are fictional, some are knowing, some don't know they're involved, some are willing, and some are distinctly unwilling. Uh, but it doesn't really matter what they think, they all get thrown in anyway. Um, and this is an attempt, or it was an attempt in 2008, to map the relationships between all these people um, in, as the project was at that time. And as I say, it's grown since then uh, enormously. Uh, I know you can't see that very clearly, but we can explore it later if people want to uh, see who's actually on it. The kind of guiding spirit behind the whole thing uh, is Georges Bataille, uh, who some of you at least will know, uh, French sociologist, philosopher, writer, and librarian for a lot of his life. Um, and Bataille appears in every aspect of the project, uh, not necessarily literally. One doesn't have to buy into Bataille to buy into Headless, uh, which is good to me. I'm not a great Bataille fan, but uh, some are, I know. Um, uh, but but the, the Bataille's notion of uh, particularly secrecy, excess, uh, his uh, very famous book, La, La Palmaudite, A Cursed Share, which was all about the, the economics of excess, the idea that an economy built around excess uh, uh, would be liberating, underpins the project both in the sense that the subject of the project, which is the very dry world of offshore finance, is excessive and immoral and uh, uh, that sort of thing, and therefore has a sort of Bataillean uh, feel to it, even though I don't think Bataille would recognize that. But the other side of that is the artists themselves are promoting a Bataillean vision uh, of the world. And it's fundamental in that one of the key themes of the project uh, refers back to Asifal, which was a secret society set up in 1937 as an anti-fascist organization by Bataille. Uh, and it's a rather peculiar organization. Um, to be an active political organization, but to be secret uh, and ritualistic. And they, this is the, the front cover of Asifal, the, the, the journal they published. There weren't many of them. Um, but the idea was this secret society, which would be based on the release of energy. It was all very much about energistics. Uh, about unleashing human energies and natural energies and solar energies through decapitation and somehow uh, uh, releasing the body. Bataille was very much into the physicality uh, of uh, action and wanted to kind of take the head uh, almost out of the equation. So we didn't think about what we were doing. We could behave like animals. We could be animalistic, uh, naturalistic. 
hence the logo has the decapitated body with its uh, energies unleashed. And Asifal, as you probably know, means headless. In the context of looking for headless, the project, um, what we are all looking for, insofar as we're looking for anything. So can everyone hear me? I'm sorry. Are you turning it on? Okay. Wave if you can't. It's a bit echoey. Okay. So it's not making you, you're just getting no sense. Okay. Um, these are the papers of registration for, I think it's getting more echoey now. <laughs> Never mind. Um, uh, a company called Headless Limited, which is an offshore uh, uh, registered business corporation, which is real. The problem, of course, is what reality means in respect to the contemporary economy and particularly offshore finance. Because although Headless exists, these are its real registration papers, which were unearthed in the Bahamas by John Barlow, the writer who was sent there to look for Headless by Golden Senebi. There is no other trace of this company anywhere that anyone can find. We know it exists, we know it's real, we don't know anything else about it. And it highlights one of the aspects of offshore finance in that although it exists and it's very real in terms of its effect, in terms of what happens to money uh, uh, in the world, it is invisible. We cannot see it. Um, the implication of this being included in the project is that there is potentially a link between Asifal and Headless. So if you think kind of, you know, Dan Brown conspiracy theory type uh, uh, projects as though somehow Asifal has continued from 1937 onwards and is kind of now represented by Headless, uh, Headless Limited that is. I have my doubts about that one, but that doesn't matter. Um, it, it's the backstory of the project uh, uh, brings these things uh, together and lets you make your mind up really about how much of it you believe. Headless itself, which is an, an IBC, an international business company, is uh, uh, incorporated in the Bahamas by this company called the Sovereign Trust, uh, or Sovereign Group, I think they're actually called, but we call them Sovereign Trust because they're the, they, they are slightly litigious too. Um, and Sovereign Trust is a, a, a company that will register you a company anywhere. So if you've got a shed load of money you want to hide from the tax man, uh, you go to Sovereign Trust and they will register you a company, uh, they'll register you a trust uh, in, say, the Bahamas and they'll, they'll register you a company uh, to own the trust or the trust owns the company, whichever way around you do it, in the Cayman Islands. And once you've set up one of these shell structures, your money is completely invisible. You are completely invisible. And from that moment on, much like Golden and Senebi do, you operate through agents, uh, other people, third parties that do everything for you. So in a sense, my role is to act as the kind of sovereign trust of headless. I am the sort of intervening uh, legal structure, I suppose, uh, that delivers uh, the system, uh, the project, without them ever being seen. So in that sense, what headless as a project does is to mimic offshore finance. Uh, we've actually created, or they have created, this very elaborate corporate structure with no money, there's no capital, there's nothing in it. Uh, and of course, we're doing it very publicly. It's almost inside out in terms of uh, the way offshore functions. Uh, but in terms of the sort of uh, nature of agency and hiddenness and authorship, it's very similar to the way uh, that uh, offshore finance functions. The 
This is the Rock of Gibraltar, in case you're not familiar with it. Uh, and this, just if you think back to the, the, the first slide I put up of uh, me talking uh, rubbish in the zoo a year ago, the reason I was talking in the zoo um, uh, in London was because originally Georges Bataille in 1929 had an epiphany in front of the monkey house in London Zoo uh, from which he wrote uh, one of his more famous texts called the Solar Anus um, which is a very bizarre sort of semi-poem, sort of prose poem about sex and death and putrefaction and uh, lots of other unpleasant things um, and the title I was given to speak to in London Zoo was the first line of that uh, uh, prose poem. Uh, and the first line being, everything you see is something, I can't remember the full title, we can look it up later, it doesn't matter. But the link to Gibraltar, uh, uh, the reason I was talking in London Zoo, was because there's a, a link to uh, Sovereign. Sovereign Trust is largely based in Gibraltar. It's actually now run out of Hong Kong. Uh, but what they wanted to do again was to draw together all these various aspects uh, of the project, including the rock itself and, of course, the monkeys. Uh, this is where Sovereign Trust operates, uh, and if you go to Sovereign, you can register a company from anywhere in any of these various locations around the world. Uh, and the way these locations work inverts the function of the map, turns the map upside down, because through these points you can leave the map. You actually become invisible by uh, channeling your money through these points into uh, the world of offshore. Um, Headless itself, uh, as I said earlier, is, is registered in the Bahamas, um, but there is no, very little trace of Headless in the Bahamas. When John Barlow was sent to the Bahamas to, to go looking for offshore, he found the shore, this is one of his pictures that he put in his travel blog, bits of bits of behind you. But offshore itself is invisible in these places. Uh, offshore has no substance, it's legal fiction. So he spent a happy week going around the Bahamas concocting uh, elements of the novel and found the registration papers but didn't actually find offshore itself because offshore doesn't have uh, that kind of materiality. Again, one of the questions running through the project is what constitutes materiality? Um, because offshore, you just have to think about the uh, 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 economic crisis, which doesn't seem to be hitting Melbourne, but seems to be hitting everywhere else, pretty much, um, is partly driven by the, f the, the machinations of offshore finance. Certainly in Europe, uh, uh, the uh, actions of the hedge funds, most of which are, all of which are registered offshore, has been a key determinant in driving uh, certain aspects of the credit crisis. So by physically going to uh, the Bahamas, um, Barlow is highlighting these kind of uh, problems. In terms of the roles we as individuals play with respect to the project, um, they can be quite complex. Uh, this is me uh, being boring in Sweden uh, a couple of years ago. This was actually a very intense uh, performance uh, that we did. The person in the foreground, we can just see with a radio mic on, is uh, Kim A. Narsen, who is uh, a curator and critic. And what we're doing here is recreating um, an interview that Kim conducted with me some six months previously. And what then happened was that Kim wrote it up as a script, and we reenacted it on a stage in, uh, this is the Index Gallery in Stockholm, 
uh, for uh, uh, what was really quite a big audience uh, that particular evening. And they didn't know that it was scripted. And so we were partly reading from scripts, partly ad-libbing uh, and recreating this interview. To make things interesting, you can't see her, but uh, in the audience, the uh, Golden Centipede planted an actress. And the actress was there to ask or re-ask a question which had been thrown at me in the power plant in Toronto in 2008. And the question itself was a rambling thing that went on and on and on and on. Nobody understood it, least of all me. And I guess it's a completely random answer. And so we recreated this very sort of tense exchange uh, uh, in this. And this was an extraordinarily um, bizarre event to participate in, but one that really worked uh, in terms of dislocating the audience, drawing the audience in, but also uh, uh, not letting them in too far. They, at the end, lots of people said they'd figured out that one of the questioners was the act, an actor, but they couldn't figure out which one, which was a, a quite interesting. Um, so their expectations were slightly uh, wobbly. Uh, this is another performance I did. This is me wandering around the Forêt de Marly, just outside Paris, a couple of years ago, uh, talking mainly about Bataille. Um, and this was a very strange event for me because I'd never done a peripatetic lecture in a forest before. Um, but it was, a, a, unfortunately, the sun was shining, so it was quite a nice event. But um, it was interesting to walk around this particular forest because this was a place where Bataille and his secret society used to meet. They used to go into the woods. Bataille had this great thing about there was a particular oak tree, which he referred to as the king of the woods, and it was a lightning-struck oak tree. And Bataille was particularly impressed by this because here was the king of the woods struck down by nature and decapitated. One of the things that Bataille wanted Asifal to do was actually to behead someone. And Bataille volunteered to be the, the person decapitated. And he wanted to be decapitated in this forest because this near here is Versailles and this is where the French Revolution happened and lots of people got decapitated. Uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the members of Asifal wouldn't do it. Um, they were, they, I think everyone volunteered to be decapitated, but nobody would actually wield the knife uh, for fear of uh, uh, reprisals. Given it was 1937 and what was about to happen, they were perhaps a bit coy, but uh, um, Asifal kind of crumbled after the war began. But the, part of the backstory for this walk was that we were actually following the footsteps of Bataille around the forest, uh, talking about the energetics. Uh, of, of nature and the rest of it. Now, this isn't very clear, but this was the uh, output of that particular talk. Most of the talks I have done over the past few years have ended up being incorporated into particular exhibits. This one won't, I don't think, I hope, um, but others have. Now, this is part of an exhibition uh, which happened a week after I'd done the lecture uh, in the Fondation Cadiste in Paris, and this is a hand-drawn map of the forest that we walked around by Bataille, which was recreated in white on the wall. And you would sit, this was known as the forest room, and you would sit in this room and a bright light would shine and burn the image of the map onto your retina. And then the light would go out and you'd sit there with this image floating around on your uh, uh, iris. Meanwhile, my lecture was, an edited version, was coming out of a speaker in the wall uh, with subtitle translation on the screen in front of you. And the purpose of this was to tie this room into another room, which I don't have a slide of here, which was a recreation of the vestibule of a Parisian bank. 
And the reason for that is that the bank in question was a Russian-owned bank that had been instrumental in the creation of offshore finance in the 1950s. And what Goldman Sotheby tried to do there was to pull these two aspects, the Bataille, the strangeness of Bataille's philosophy and the strangeness of offshore finance together uh, by linking two. I never actually saw the exhibition, but I believe it was quite effective, but uh, I'd gone home by then. Uh, this was the, the final one. Again, the, the, going back to the talk in the zoo, um, I wasn't really aware of this at the time, but two days after I gave the talk, it was edited down uh, uh, into a, a sort of soundscape uh, and installed in this large fiberglass rock of Gibraltar uh, in the Moderna Musette in Stockholm, where I gather it's now part of the permanent collection. And the, the, there's a hole at the top, which you probably can't see, but out of that hole, uh, my droning voice comes to, talking about monkeys and bataille and empires and offshore currencies and that sort of thing. So uh, we can all go to Stockholm and see that now. Um, but the, the, the reason putting these up is because of the way that the project integrates us and then reintegrates us again and again and again uh, as the project has developed. So again, the issue of boundaries emerges about actually who is the author of this piece. I mean, I don't claim any authorship over it, even though my voice is coming out of it. Uh, but it begs a number of questions about the nature of the object uh, and the, the location of the object. The other kind of aspect of this that underpins the, 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 what the project is trying to do is to highlighting the connection between contemporary art and the finance industry, in particular offshore finance. Um, one of the first events I did for Golden and Senebi was in 2008, was the week Lehman Brothers went down. Uh, and it was in the city of London, in a gallery in the city of London. And it was, a it was a group show, partly headless, but a bunch of quite radical artists doing this exhibition uh, in front of all the great and the good of the London art world, half of whom were investment bankers. And so we were all doing these little performances and speeches with, all the, with the, bank, the sound of banks crashing behind us. It was rather, rather entertaining. So we were able to happily predict the demise of capitalism uh, in front of a, an audience of investment bankers, which is something I will cherish for the rest of my life. But back to this, um, the, this is kind of symbolic of the relationship between the art world and finance. Uh, the Sovereign Trust, the offshore company that registered headless, um, also runs uh, an annual art prize, an international art prize. In fact, the, the sections of it are down there. Howard Bilton, who is the chief executive of Sovereign, fancies himself as a bit of a, a patron of the arts. Well, he is. He buys loads of it. Um, and the art prize is a way of benign PR, I suppose, uh, and cultural credibility for Sovereign. And uh, he gets all these, the great and the good involved. You see Peter Blake's there, Jarvis Cocker, Alan Yentob, very, uh, various other great media moguls of uh, the British art world in particular. Um, and Golden and Senebi have submitted uh, part of Headless, which is, of course, about Sovereign Trust, to the Sovereign Art Prize. Needless to say, they did not win it but they did have a go. And there's pictures over there, actually, of, of um, John, uh, no, it's not John Barlow, uh, somebody and Richard John Jones uh, 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 appearing at the, uh, the Sovereign Art Prize uh, dinner, which I gather was very good. I didn't get an invite. Uh, never mind. Um, and then finally, um, back to the beginning. 
this is how the novel begins. Um, uh, it, it, it even goes as far as to tell you this is how it begins, as if it wasn't obvious from it being page one. Um, this is how it starts. Two young men walk into an office block in central Stockholm. They're casually dressed and intensely observant. They make their way to a hired conference room on the seventh floor where they meet Rob Shipman. As they enter the room, their wide-eyed analytical manner gives Shipman cause to think. What the hell are they looking at, he asks himself. Because in the world of offshore finance, it is not standard practice to look this deeply at anything. The two young men call themselves artists. Their English is impeccable. The tiniest bit stilted, a bit in the way of a young Bill Gates rather than a foreigner. They are, in fact, Swedish. Their names are Goldman, Simon Golden and Jacob Senneby and they are not the kind of artists Rob Shipman had expected. They're courteous and relaxed, and exude a zen-like air of control. Rob Shipman winds up headless in the novel. I don't think he does in real life. He is a real person. I don't know if this event really happened. I suspect it did, though, of course, this is a fictionalized version of uh, events. But I put it up partly just to neatly round off the end of the thing with the beginning rather than the end, but also because the, a strand that runs through Headless, which is never made explicit, is that of power. Um, this idea that they have this zen-like air of control. And it struck me as particularly relevant in a, uh, to have this in a show called Power to the People, because it raised all sorts of questions about what power, held by whom, to what people exactly. And these are questions that have been deliberately provoked by Headless, but have washed around it ever since its inception. Um, and I don't really have an answer to that, because I think you know, how a project like this uh, uh, is received is kind of up to you as an audience. Um, so I will stop there with Golden Senebi disappearing down a black hole, appropriately enough. Um, and hand it over to you. <laughs>